Good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. to study the Word of God together. We're continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew. And I hope you're having a fantastic summer. I hope you are having rest, relaxation, refreshment for your soul and your mind and your body and your spirit. Uh, I myself, I'm on vacation this week, actually. Uh, I was camping last week. I'm going to camp again this next week. Uh, We were camping in Lapine this last week, and uh, this next week we're going to be camping with uh, family up in Washington and spending uh, spending some time together with them. We're looking forward to that. And I just, I hope you're having a fantastic summer. Uh, Of course, if you're listening to this or watching this, you know that all of our online content is available by searching faithonhill.com on Spotify, Facebook, or Apple Podcasts. You can go to our website, faithonhill.com, and the online gatherings, if you scroll down, you'll find all of that content there as well. If you could do me a favor, though, um, if you could, uh, if you are on Facebook, hit the like button. Uh, you know, uh, whatever kind of response thing on the platform you're at, Spotify or whatever, just give us a like, give us a follow, subscribe, whatever. That just is appreciated. You know, you put a little bit of work into these online things, and it's, it's something you're grateful for. Uh, if you have a Bible, and there's no reason you shouldn't, you can just pause this video or podcast and get a Bible, Bible app, whatever. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. Matthew 17, verse 1 says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Now, this is uh, separating John from like John the Baptist or somebody else. This is John, the brother of James, same John who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the book of Revelation, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. Just then, There appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah comes first and will restore all things, but I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but they have done to him everything that they wished in the same way the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Now, what's going on here? Jesus takes three of the disciples, not all 12, Not all of his followers, just three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, up onto this mountainside, and there they have this supernatural experience. I don't claim to know or understand why God chooses to reveal himself in ways like this, not necessarily exactly like this, but in divine, powerful, supernatural ways to some of his disciples and not to others. And we have to be honest with that reality. 
one of the big debates in the church, and this has been a debate in the American church for the last hundred plus years. Does the Holy Spirit of God work among Christians the way that he seemed to in the book of Acts? I believe the answer is yes. And at the same time, we have to recognize that it's not true for everyone. You might remember this from last week. We talked about how Jesus said that there was some of the disciples who would not taste death until they had seen Jesus coming back. And how John in his gospel actually had to dispel a rumor that Jesus had taught that John wasn't going to die before Jesus came back. And and John's like, he didn't say that. But what he actually said, according to John's gospel, was that what if that was the case, Peter? Because Peter was like, what about me, you know? And Jesus said, it's not your business. If I choose for John to be alive when I come back, but I, I don't choose it for you, it's not your business what I choose for him. We can get into this comparison game, this others game. What if you're Thomas? What if you're Matthew who wrote this gospel and you're Matthew going, why wasn't I up on the mountainside? Does Jesus not love me the same way? I don't think so. Matthew had his own road to walk. Peter, James, and John had their path to walk. And comparing ourselves to others is often incredibly unhelpful. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about this in the book of 1 Corinthians. You know, that what, what if the ear said to the hand, hey, you're not useful. I'm the one that hears everything. What do you do? And the ankle said to the ear, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm the one holding all this stuff up. If, if I stopped working, oh, you'd hear, you'd hear the sound of you flopping to the ground. That's how important I am. And we get comparison. And, we, and then maybe if our Christian experience is different than someone else's, we say, well, that's not valid because it's not like what I, I've experienced. Or we say, maybe I'm not good enough because somebody else seems to have experienced something different. I don't think that's helpful at all. This was an experience that was meant for Peter and James and John. And sometimes the Lord will bring you into places and down paths that are just meant for you. Also, this is an evidence. This is a confirmation. One of the big questions that has been posed in the last several chapters of the Gospel of Matthew is, by whose authority does Jesus do these things? Who is Jesus? Is he really the Messiah? And this proof is for them. You know, sometimes you might think, I don't understand how people can't believe. I, I've, I know this to be true, and it is important for you but it won't matter for someone else. This was important for them, but it might not matter to somebody in our day. So it says that while they're there, it was, he was transfigured before them. What, what I believe was happening, and I will try to explain this as best I can, because we are dealing with areas and realms beyond our understanding, but as best as I can understand, in some way, the veil between heaven and earth between the natural and the supernatural was at least in part removed and Jesus was revealed in his glory. And it had physical effects. It was blinding. But stranger than Moses and Elijah appear and they're talking with Jesus. Are these ghosts? No. I don't claim to know what's going on. Is this a vision? 
Did Moses and Elijah physically appear with Jesus? Uh, was it something in between that we don't have words for? I don't know. I do not believe that these are like the reincarnations of Moses and Elijah. Um, Moses died at the end of Exodus. Elijah did not die. He was caught up to heaven. You can find that in the book of 1 Kings, and that's a whole other story. But there was a prophecy that Elijah would return before the Messiah came. And this is something we have talked about in the past. I think about a month or two ago we talked about this. Wait a minute. The prophet said that Elijah was going to come back, and yet you're here, Jesus, and we're pretty sure you're the Messiah, and we haven't seen Elijah. And Jesus said, if you can accept it, John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And so again, he's talking to them about John the Baptist when he says Elijah has come. So this idea that uh, Moses and Elijah are there, here is one of the greatest of the prophets, and here is the greatest leader in Israel's history to this day, Moses. And they're there affirming Jesus. They're there confirming Jesus. Now, Peter begins to talk. Peter seems to, he gets a lot of flack. I think a lot of it's unfair, but it does seem like Peter, especially in the Gospels, just like to talk. And sometimes when you just like to talk, you'll say things you, you aren't even thinking. You just start speaking. And God interrupts him. It's, the voice comes from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Basically, he's saying, Peter, shut up and listen to Jesus. And boy, that is the case. How many people would do far better instead of talking just to listen, especially listening to Jesus? What are we going to do? Well, here's what I think. Instead of, hey, let's pray. Let's ask Jesus. It says that while uh, the, the voice from the cloud, they were, they were so fearful that they fell to the ground. When you read in the scriptures about encounters with angels, and this isn't even the voice of God, this is just angels, those who stand in the presence of God. When you read in the scriptures about those who stand in the presence of God, people fall to the ground in terror. You see that in the book of Daniel. You see that in the book of the Revelation and other places in the scripture, but those two come to mind as very, very pointed examples. Let alone somebody who encounters the presence of God. Moses wanted to see the glory of God, and God said, if I showed you my glory in full, it would kill you. That's why I don't think that the glory of Jesus was fully revealed to them, because they didn't die. Uh, but they did fall down terrified. I've heard people say, you know, I had an experience, and sometimes I think, you know, you don't sound scared enough to have had the experience you claim to have. Sometimes when I hear people say, oh, and I get to heaven, I'm going to give God a piece of my mind. I say, well, not according to the scripture. Because people fall down at the sight of those who just stand in the presence of God, those who are just like the moon. They don't have any light in and of themselves, but they reflect the glory of God. How much more so when you stand before the Almighty? The bigger point to me, though, is this reminder, listen to Jesus. We can speak, we can have our opinions, listen to Jesus. Now, Jesus is so gracious, he gets them to stand up. He says, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead, meaning, hey, this is for you. But it's not time for people to know about this yet. Um, and then they ask this question about Elijah. I, I think there's two things that are going on here. First is that John the Baptist was living in the, the office or the ministry of Elijah, and, and Jesus says, hey, he came, 
and he operated in the spirit and the power of Elijah, and they killed him. People say, well, you know, if only Jesus would reveal himself now, or if I could see the miracles that Jesus performed, but today, then I would believe. And I just, I don't think so. Because the people in that day saw the power of God working through John the Baptist. The people in that day saw God in human flesh in Jesus Christ. And they rejected it. So why would it be any different today? Now, I do believe uh, Revelations chapter 11 talks about two witnesses who will appear in the city of Jerusalem. And it says that in some future day, in the city of Jerusalem, two witnesses will appear and they will declare the truth of God to the world. Now, I believe personally that at least one of them will be literally Elijah. And I, I, if I had to guess, you know, put, put a dollar on it, right? I'd guess that Moses is the other one, but, uh, you know, there's actually a better biblical case for Enoch uh, just based on some other things. That being said, I think the bigger idea is this. Jesus came the first time and John the Baptist came in the spirit of the power of Elijah and prepared the way. Before Jesus returns a second time, two witnesses will appear. You can go read Revelation chapter 11. Two witnesses will appear and they will testify and prepare the way for Jesus, just as Jesus says. Now, when they come down the mountain, it says a man uh, approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said, for he has seizures He suffers greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and first generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Now, we've talked about this before. Jesus' response seems a little bit harsh, seems a little bit uncaring. But what does he end the whole thing with? Bring the boy to me. I'm going to do the work. So it says that he rebuked the demon and he came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. It's interesting. There's oftentimes in the Gospels where somebody says, uh, you know, this person was demon-possessed. Can you heal them? And we're kind of like, were they really, or was it really uh, something else? And in this case, they don't attribute it to demons. They say he just, he has seizures, and it's physical, and then Jesus says, actually, the problem is spiritual. I fully believe that there are people who have physiological reasons for what they go through physiological reasons for what they suffer, and there are people who have spiritual, demonic reasons for their suffering or for their affliction. I don't know which is which. Now, there, there are times where the, the wisdom of God can, can flow through a believer through the Spirit, and they can have some discernment, but Jesus knows. And so when I pray for healing for somebody, I trust the Lord's going to know the difference. But he heals the boy, he casts out the demon, And when the disciples came to Jesus in private, they said, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can do, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, does Jesus really want us to go and tell Mount Hood to move over there? Mount Hood, I like you better on the other side of the Columbia. Get going. I don't believe so. Uh, Jesus often spoke in hyperbole. He would say these outrageous things to make a point. This is commonplace throughout all four Gospels. Jesus using hyperbole to make a point. I believe what he's saying to them, though, is you guys, you don't have enough faith. You, you, 
you, you, didn't, you weren't ready for the moment. Now, it's easy to get down on ourselves, and this is why I appreciate having all, all four Gospels. Mark chapter 9 shares the same story, but Jesus adds in, in Mark's account that there are demons that can only come out through prayer and fasting. I believe there are times where our faith is sufficient and we can stand firm and we can do the ministry that God has for us. And there are times where we aren't ready for battle and prayer is necessary. And maybe it's not demonic exorcism. Maybe it's a trial. Maybe it's healing. Maybe it's greater faith. Maybe you're going into a situation and you know what? It just requires prayer. It requires prayer and preparation. And I don't think there's anything unbiblical or lacking faith in saying there are times where the only way we can walk through the valley or overcome the trial or see a breakthrough or see healing is through intentional times of prayer and fasting. Jesus says, you know what? You weren't ready. And maybe it's because they hadn't been praying beforehand. Maybe it was because they gave up too easily, too early. I don't know. But it says that he, he cast out the demon, but then he doesn't write him off. Oh, you guys messed up. He said, here's, here's how you do it. Seek God. Increase your faith. Pray. Build yourself up. Become spiritually strong so that you can stand in the battle. He's not writing them off. He's showing them the way forward. I love that. Verse 22, when they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. I actually view this as a positive step forward. Why is that? Because the last time that Jesus told them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and they're going to kill me, what did the disciples do? They rebuked him. They said, no, that isn't going to happen. And they weren't even brave enough to do it themselves. They sent their spokesman, Peter, to do it. But Jesus indicates later that it was all of them who were thinking that. This time, they don't rebuke him. This time, they don't challenge it. This time, they know it's true. But the truth of it grieves them. The truth of them grieves them. That Je- now, I personally think there was some weird thing going on where the disciples' ears shut off and they only heard the death part and not the rise from the dead part. That's just a personal belief of mine. But... The idea is is that they have moved from rejecting to grief. There are times, you know, we talked about like needing to pray more. Jesus said, you know, you can only have victory is is through prayer and fasting. This type of demon, we don't understand what that means. But I know this. There are things that are really hard for us to accept in the Scripture parts of the Christian faith that we do not understand. Things that come easily for some might come hard for others. And there have been times where I I have read something in the Bible and said, I don't like that. I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to pretend that's not there. I'm going to try to find somebody who will tell me that I don't have to listen to that part of the Bible. And by the way, you will easily find someone for every part of the Bible to tell you you can just ignore that part. but there is a moment where you say, okay, this is here. And you move from rejecting it to saying, okay, this is part of it. I'm going to deal with it. And sometimes, let's just be honest, there is some grief. 
there are things in the scripture that are really hard for us to process. And it's different for different people what that might be. And it could even be grievous. I was talking to a friend of mine who is in sobriety and recovery, and it really bothers him that Jesus turned water into wine. It really bothers him. And for a long time, he looked to ignore those verses. He, he looked for all those excuses. Well, when it says wine, it doesn't really mean wine, or it, it means a watered-down wine or something. He was always looking for excuses. It's pretty clear to me that Jesus made good wine when he performed that miracle at the wedding of Cana. And then he moved from, all right, Jesus, I'm, I'm going to look for ways to ignore that, to in grief, because for him, he can't understand why Jesus would do that. He said, you know what? It's true. It's there. I'm going to accept it. All of us have these different things where we hear something and maybe one thing's easy for us to accept, but another teaching, another aspect of our faith, another thing that Jesus says is hard, and our first response is saying, no, no way. We're like the disciples rebuking Jesus. And then Jesus gently comes at us again, and this time we go, okay, I know that's there. I know that's true. And then we kind of walk in it. And then there'll come a point where they'll get, as time goes on, as they become you know, more sanctified, more set apart for God's service, they're going to get, oh, okay, Jesus had to die. I get it. I get it now. But there's a process that often happens. And I think we should have grace for people who are in that process, and we should have a recognition for ourselves that there might be things that are hard for us to accept, but it doesn't make them untrue. They're hard for us to embrace, but it doesn't mean that they're wrong. And I think this is a, a sign of growth on the disciples' part. Finally, for chapter 17, after Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? So there was this temple tax. It was a way for all of the people to support the work and the upkeep of the temple because it's expensive to run a temple in Jerusalem. And so they come to Peter and we're not sure why they ask this question, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Maybe it was snide. You know, they're, they're the employees of the uh, people that have been against Jesus. And so maybe it's sort of a snide comment, you know, do you think you're better than us now? Do you think you're big enough to not pay your temple tax? And Peter says, yes, he does. Maybe he'd seen Jesus pay it in the past or whatever. But he says, yes, he does. So he came into the house and says Jesus was first to speak. So maybe Jesus uh, just overheard what was going on. You know, they were loud or something. And Jesus says, what do you think, Simon? He asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and for yours. Okay, so Jesus is so broke that he can't afford the two, the two drachma tax, and this is not a big tax. This is like a pittance, right? Because this was tax paid by everybody. It was expected that even the poor could, could pitch in and do their part. But Jesus didn't have any money. So Peter comes in, and this is what I think is going on. Peter maybe is like, hey, we don't have any cash right now, uh, but I'm just going to go in and uh, see what Jesus wants to do. 
And Jesus beats in the punch. Hey, do the princes pay tax to the king? And Peter says, no. You know, the king, and back then everyone is, you know, the taxes were collected for kings and for rulers and for, you know, do the, do the, does the king pay tax? No. Do, does his children pay tax? No. The subjects do. And Jesus says, so we should be exempt too. This is the temple tax, and Jesus is God, and Peter is his, his disciple. Why should they pay? But he says, so that we don't cause offense. Let's pay this tax. And then miraculously, he tells Peter, you know, go out and do this thing. Again, this supernatural divine event, it's not, regulator, uh, you know, it's not regular that you see this. There's not stories all through the Bible of people fishing and finding coins, right? This is just a miraculous thing that happened. And there are times like that throughout our lives, if you're paying attention, where something miraculous happens and you just go, the hand of God was there. And it bolsters your faith, it increases your faith, and I'm sure it did for Peter. But the bigger point that Jesus was making was that, hey, this isn't for you, but let's not cause offense. Jesus is saying, hey, it's not worth making a big deal over this. There's far bigger issues, Peter, than the temple tax. There's far bigger issues than, than this small thing. So let's just pay it so that we don't cause offense. You know, there are things in this world that are just not worth making a big deal over. And it seems like some Christians are just hell-bent on making a big deal over not big issues. The big, the main, the central, the only point is to make disciples of Jesus and to be a witness of Jesus. That's what we are called to do, to tell anyone and everyone we can about the Lord and Savior that we know and we serve. And to teach people how to be disciples of him. So be a witness of Jesus and to make disciples of Jesus. That's the point. And if somebody wants to make a big deal about some little thing, I'm not interested. So that we can not cause offense and continue on the mission that God has given us, what can we do in that moment, in that way? How can we Say, you know what? I'm just going to pay the tax. And there are times you do that. There are times you just say, you know what? It's not going to be the end of the world. And people want to do that. People want to make a mountain out of a molehill or they want to get caught on side issues. And they want to, instead of just saying, how can we love and serve people? Oh, I want to be like Jesus here. You know, I, I'll give you some real world examples of this. I know some women who ran a, um, a uh, it's hard to describe. We don't really have anything like this that I've seen in America, but they, there's in Europe and they ran a, a community center. I think that's the best word for it. But there were a lot of refugees in their community and most of them were from Muslim countries. And so they said, hey, you know, let's have a place where women and their small children can come there's coffee, there's treats, um, and they, we can provide resources. Hey, it's, you know, it's kind of like a, um, you know, like a, a food bank and a, a clothing bank. Hey, um, you know, you're new, uh, you're a refugee. Here's, uh, 
all kinds of information on different resources, healthcare, uh, education, you know, all this different stuff, uh, different resources that are available to you. Uh, you've just come here. Do you, need some f- do you need some food? Do you need some supplies? Do you need help getting set up in this community? And so they ran this community center to Christian women. And they made the choice, even though as Christian women, they were not under any obligation, but they made the choice to wear head coverings. They made the choice to dress extremely conservatively because the women from these Muslim countries would dress, well, I mean, you know, extremely conservative with the hijab and the whole thing. And so they said, so that we won't cause offense to them, so that we can show them the love of Jesus, we will choose to sacrifice our rights and dress in a way that they dress. There have been times where, you know what, I have the freedom to do a lot of things. But I've been somewhere and I said, you know what, I'm going to sacrifice my freedom so that I cannot cause offense. I go to Mexico. I'll tell you that Christians in Mexico hate Halloween. I think, I mean, Halloween's like my least favorite holiday, but I don't care. I don't think Halloween's evil in the sense of like, you know, you you let your kids trick or treat and they're going to worship the devil. I don't think, I think that's silly. But when I go to, uh, when I I go to Mexico, you know, if they bring up Halloween, I just sit there and be quiet about it, right? Like I take my kids trick or treating. It's no big deal. You know, I don't, I don't mind, uh, you know, I know our youth group every year watches Hocus Pocus and Carbs Pumpkins. That sounds fun. But you know what? If I'm in some other culture, I'm in some other situation, why would I make a big deal about a little thing? And yet Christians want to do that all over the place. We want to get in arguments about things. When I lived in England, it was in the 2000s, you know, and there was stuff going on. I was in England for 9-11, and I would get people who just want to argue with me about America's foreign policy or the president or anything like that. i say, I don't care. I'm here to tell people about Jesus. I don't want to talk about my president or my country's foreign policy, I am only here to talk about Jesus. And sometimes that took a little bit of, because, mm, you know, somebody would say something, make me mad or whatever. But the point was so that we don't cause offense so we can carry out our mission. Jesus is real. God is working. The disciples have just experienced the transfiguration, at least three of them have. All of the disciples saw Jesus deliver this boy and, and a direct extension of God's power. And now people want to come and cause division. And Jesus says, let's just pay the tax and let's move forward so we can do the work that God the Father has given us. I think the same is true for us. I don't want to get divided over politics. We've got an election coming up this fall. You're not going to hear me talk about which way you should vote or if you should vote or any of that stuff. Because I'm not interested in dividing. People want to divide old and young. People want to divide modern and traditional. People want to divide this or that. Let's together say, how do we stay laser-focused to be a witness of Jesus Christ in our community and to show people how to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? That's where we're at. You know, today we talked about one of the most miraculous supernatural stories in the Gospels, the transfiguration. And then, of course, there was the casting out of a demon, and there was the miraculous provision of the money for the temple tax. And some people say, why don't I see that in my life? I want to pray this prayer for you, and I want to encourage you to find a way in your own words to pray the same prayer. God, holy in heaven, 
righteous in all the earth, I thank you that you reveal yourself to people. You reveal yourself to women and men in all times and all places. Father, I ask that you would make us aware of your work, your movement, your divine intervention. Jesus, thank you that you sent the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit that you send is working in and through the lives of Christians today. And we pray that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we could know you more fully and that we could be strengthened by you to do the work you have for us. Spirit, we thank you for the work that you do. You are truly God, equal to the Father and the Son. And we ask that your presence would be felt in this community, calling unbelievers to yourself and making believers more like Jesus. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. May the God of all peace be with you this week as you live and move on the mission of Jesus to be a witness and to make disciples.